This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fake news, post-truth, alternative facts, conspiracies, bot-generated posts, lies, lies, lies. When will it stop? We're living in an exciting and also disorienting time when truth, it seems, is up for grabs. In Democracy and Truth, A Short History, Professor Sophia Rosenfeld explains that a crisis of truth is not new and that democracy has always, at least in its modern forms, had to find a way to mediate expert knowledge held by the elites, with the wisdom of the crowds and common sense. How can we define the truth in a democracy when everyone's opinion is supposed to matter equally? Is the current political climate truly different from earlier times when people lie to gain advantage, politicians conceal things to protect themselves, their party, or the country, and people had a healthy distrust of educated, powerful elites? I spoke with Professor Rosenfeld, who teaches at the University of Pennsylvania and is also the author of Common Sense, a Political History, A Revolution in Language, Signs in Late 18th Century France, and Democracy and Truth, A Short History. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Welcome, I'm really happy to have Sophia Rosenfeld here. I guess you go by Sophie, is that right? If I, I go can... by either one. Oh, Sophia, Sophia. So Professor Rosenfeld is the Walter Annenberg Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania. You've written several books, one of them is a history of the idea of common sense, a political history. One is the use of language in late 18th century France, right before the revolution, kind of a revolution in language. And then the book I just read for the last couple of days, I was really excited to receive, is called Democracy and Truth, A Short History. And the book now, as you can see, looks like a piñata. I have so many little (laughs) post-it notes in it. Super. So first of all, thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. The book gives a kind of history of the last 200 years from the great revolutions, the French and American revolutions specifically, Mm -hmm. where the people assume power rather than monarchs or rulers. And you try to give a deeper sense of what is the rule of truth in democracy. In today's age, today Michael Cohen is testifying before Congress right now while we speak. We live in an age of post-truth, alternative facts, fake news, conspiracy theories, and people saying 
whatever they want, it seems, and people having a hard time deciding how do you assess what's true, what's false. But you go back to the early 1800s and say there's always been a complicated relationship between truth and democracy. Yes, I mean, even the Michael Cohen testimony today is actually interesting because on the one hand, you think here's a liar testifying about other lies that he told on behalf of other liars, and it's lies all the way down, except that we still are invested enough in the ritual of trying to get to the bottom and discern the truth that, in fact, this procedure is happening as part of American democratic practice. So there is a kind of dualism, I think, built into American and really all democratic politics from the beginning, which is to say there's a great premium placed on the importance of truth, that people should operate out of truth, that democratic governance should even result in truth. And yet that truth is always left open-ended in a certain way so that it's a perennially contested thing. Where is it? How do you find it? Who gets to say what it is? And what do you do with it once you know what it is? In your book, you talk quite a bit about who gets to find it and who gets to define it. And there are sort of two groups. But before we get to that, what you just said, there's an assumption that truth matters in democracy. Yes. It's, it's actually, it's really important. Why is it so important? Why couldn't we just have a democracy in truth? There's something that's done on the side, that's done by other people somewhere, but it's not really essential to political life. Yes, it's an interesting thing. I think it's an artifact of the Enlightenment in part because it isn't essential, really, that truth be at the heart of a politics. A politics can be about power. It can be about all kinds of things. It doesn't have to be about truth. But the thinking about republics starting in the 18th century was premised not just on the idea that truths would be good for republics, but that republics would be good for truth, that this was a particular form of government that would help in the process of not laying down truths from on high, but building up truths through a kind of give and take in some sort of open forum that would, in the end, take us closer to knowing more about the world than we might otherwise. And there's two parts when you say the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Immanuel Kant figures in your book, sort mm -hmm. of a moment in this kind of this famous little essay, What is Enlightenment? You refer to him and say, what is he saying here? What does that have to do with being a citizen in a democracy or in a republic? Because he's basically speaking to philosophers. You point that out. Yes. It's an interesting text because there's an awful lot going on, and some of it looks very familiar to us, and some of it looks very strange to us in this famous little essay, um, What is Enlightenment?, in which Kant famously says, dare to know. And to know is, in a sense, knowledge is about getting at truth in some form. And the essay as a whole is really about how do you get there. And it's an argument largely for the deregulation of speech at one level, about allowing more people to weigh in in more different ways with the idea that if you hear multiple voices, that there isn't an orthodoxy on any topic that's enforced from above, you might, in the end, get closer to real knowledge, not just handed down received wisdom that might be traditional, but wrongheaded in some way. And why does, is Khan so concerned that we would believe in things that other people have handed us or superstition or, I mean, I, I can't understand yeah. everything about the world, so I rely on lots of experts and other people to tell me, both experts, so I'm talking to you mm -hmm. right now because I don't really know enough about <laughs> the French Revolution and the American Revolution and the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalists, right. so why shouldn't I just hand over some part of this work 
to other people and say, I'm done, it's fine, I don't need all this truth, I just need to get through my life. We all have this problem, and I think it's much worse today than in the age of sort of generalists. Kant was more of a generalist than we are today. There's way too much to know, and the only way we can know things most of the time is by relying on somebody else, and often somebody else we don't know, and we only know from their credentials or we know from the institution that they belong to. I can't tell you that the planet is warming, but if I read enough reports from what seem to be you know, impressively credentialed sources, I'm probably going to conclude that my, the best guess I have is that they are correct. I can only really measure the temperature in my own backyard or something like that. And in Kant's day, too, I don't think he thought anyone could know everything. But he did believe in a kind of healthy skepticism about official truth that's also important for democracy. So that's another way in which we're always sort of saying, yes, but. On the one hand, we do need to trust experts because to decide that you can know everything on your own is obviously a deeply mistaken belief in this day and age, especially with the plethora of complex ideas out there and data. But on the other hand, a basic Enlightenment principle still holds that a certain amount of skepticism is necessary, that we shouldn't accept that anything we read, anything we hear is true on the surface. We need to do our kind of due diligence to figure out what's something we can at least moderately rely on and what we should reject out of hand. So Kant's text is a philosophical text, as you write in the book, is written for experts, for other philosophers. Mm-hmm. But it contains the kernel of what it would become to be a citizen in democracy, that you're supposed to rely on yourself to a point. You have that Mm -hmm. courage to know something because this is the only way in which you can create a legitimate republic, that the people think for themselves in addition to, as you said, having to rely on expertise. And then you chart this kind of history of this tension between these two ideas, the kind of wisdom of the common people, common sense, and the rise of expertise. And it's a really fascinating history that there's this tension in the beginning in democracy that we're living through today right now with a few factors you're going to point out later that have changed maybe the whole situation. Yeah, and of course, Kant is initially talking about a republic of letters, not a republic in a political sense, which is interesting because he still imagined a, a monarchy behind all of this, a kind of tolerant monarchy. But in a republic of letters the number of people participating was bound to be more restricted. Fewer people were literate to begin with. Fewer people were reading newspapers. And though he was sort of addressing philosophers and ordinary literate people at the same time, since his famous essay is actually published in a journal, I mean, kind of a popular journal of its day, telling you something about the importance of the press already in the 18th century. But in a democracy, the problem gets sort of expanded tenfold, if not more, which is to say that, in principle, everyone has a voice. Mm-hmm. And that becomes, as democracies expand in the 19th and into the 20th century, becomes a pretty unwieldy place. And the number of sources of information has grown exponentially. The number of people who can weigh in has grown. And I think we always run the risk, on the one hand, of too much expertise, which is only hearing from people who've, you know, kind of number crunchers in Washington or in universities or Brussels or something on the one hand, or a kind of populist backlash on the other, which would say that no authoritative sources of knowledge are truly authoritative, that everybody knows as well as the other person, whatever the topic is, based on just daily experience. And this kind of extreme relativism that you would say that all opinions matter equally, everybody is entitled to their truth, Mm -hmm. their opinion, 
is a real political problem because politics have to work on certain shared assumptions. Before we get to what's happening today, Mm -hmm. one of the other crown witnesses in your dramatic telling here is Hannah Arendt, who actually is a reader of Kant and comes from Königsberg herself and actually has quite interesting things to say what happens in the 20th century to the relation between truth and politics. But before we get to this, what happens in the 19th century? How do the founders of the American Republic or the people who want to institute the Republic in France, how do they think of this? Do they empowering some people, not all people, mm-hmm. to have one vote, one voice, one opinion? So how do they try to yeah. balance this tension between expertise and common opinion? Right, and it's a long-standing problem that really only grows. And you might say that the two big stories of the 19th century are the expansion of the electorate to the point where eventually you get universal suffrage, but at least at first you get universal manhood suffrage. On the one hand... So it's a long 19th century a long because it's 1919 19 in yeah. America and 1946 it's women, or 45 France is in really France. late, exactly. <laughs> it's after the war. And in the, America, and African Americans get to vote in, 19, in 1868. Right. So. There's a wonderful and interesting history of sort of the discussions about who should vote that starts in the 18th century and continues really to today. Now, there are interesting questions about, say, should residents vote as well as citizens? And what's the question? Who should vote? What would be the qualification for voting? So that's really what's at stake is not just who, but what. Is it a a cognitive capacity to understand the issues? Is it a degree of knowledge that you need to know? Citizens, for instance, if you become a citizen from somewhere else, you have to pass a test about what you know about American life. When you're a native-born citizen, you don't have to know a damn thing unless you... I had to take this exam. (laughs) There you go. And And you probably know more than most Americans. my sister is a historian, and she didn't study for the exam because she's a historian of American history. Ah. And I said, why didn't you study? What if you failed? She said, if I don't know this, it would be a scandal. And I thought, well, if I failed, it would be bad for me. But I had to study up on democratic principles in Mm -hmm. America, divisions of power, all these things, the history of the country, to have a certain knowledge to qualify me as a full citizen. Which is amazing because, for instance, most Americans don't know, say, how many amendments there are to the Constitution. But that's a standard question on citizenship tests. So there's always been a question about what does a citizen Mm. need to does it, is it a certain capacity? For a long time, for instance, women weren't given the vote because it was assumed that they were dependent, that they, were, they had no independent thoughts. They didn't have independent sources of income. In early republic, servants weren't given the vote because they were thought to be also mm. dependent in some way. So there's been a long conversation about who should vote based on what qualities. Gradually, there's developed a sense that most people... We still don't think children do. We don't think uh, there are people who are certainly barred from voting. There's still an active debate going on whether former felons should vote or not, which is an astonishing debate in and of itself. Florida just restored the right to vote to former felons. So there's a debate about who has the capacity that moves towards greater democratization over time, especially for members of minority groups and for women. At the same time, though, if you're thinking more and more ordinary people get a chance to say what's true, or at least what they believe based on some kind of information, there's been an enormous expansion of expertise, both inside the government and outside. So the government does all kinds of things all states do that states once didn't do. Even 100 years ago, the state was a much smaller thing. And it relies on a huge number of consultants and think tanks and, you know, consultants to the consultants. I mean, there's an enormous industry built around supplying information, scientific information, economic information, information on public health, information on urban infrastructures, agriculture, in every domain of knowledge that you can think of. And as 
most people would agree, I would like to have a qualified engineer decide whether a bridge is safe, whether okay. the brakes on a train work, yes. whether this medication is actually deleterious or helpful, mm -hmm. whether this technology will harm me or not. So all these things are sort of given to experts and we don't have a real quarrel. When the founders started the Republic, so Madison, people you quote, Jefferson, what did they think? Did they think you couldn't trust the public with making up their own minds or would you just rather have some really educated, mm -hmm. smart people? And then you talk about a couple of disputes where the smart people, the Harvard men, become the target of the populist revolt against this culture of expertise. Yes, and there aren't the whole idea of expertise is a 19th century development. So mm -hmm. the word doesn't even exist in the 18th century. So George Washington say, or Robespierre, we're not really talking about what do we do about the experts. And they also imagined that you wouldn't need much extensive knowledge to govern, that well-off professional types would represent ordinary people, a lot of lawyers in all these early republics, you know, enter mm -hmm. legislative assemblies always, they still do, and that this would be largely sufficient. But states need, at the very minimum, to at least collect some data Almost all early republics have censuses, for instance, and collecting the information for the census was doled out to ordinary people, but how to interpret it increasingly became the kind of thing experts do. And you pointed out that there were statistics, actually. Yeah. Statistics is one of those kind of early modern developments that, again, takes off with expertise in the 19th century. But as states begin to do things like think about how to improve commerce or regulate the economy or develop standing armies or have central banks. They need people who know something about economics or military fortifications or map making or even the world of commerce and credit. And the question really became, do you turn to practitioners? Do you turn to university experts? Do you create in-house, so in other words, governmental bodies that will help with producing this information. And of course, some of that was depends where we're talking about. Sometimes that was done at some remove from the state, and sometimes it was done, as in France, for instance, more directly under the state. Well, and you mentioned that the French government develops the École Normale, the normal school, to teach teachers mm -hmm. how mm -hmm. to instruct people to become citizens. In this country, we chose not to have a national university. There's a big debate right. between Jefferson and Washington, mm -hmm. who's supposed to be the first president. Jefferson founds the University of Virginia and says quite a lot about that for a republic to function, people have to be educated. He doesn't believe that without education, people would just use their common sense for the greater good. That's right. And there is a very interesting debate about, it comes back to your question really about citizenship. How much education does everybody need? And most places, public education develops as a kind of basic right with the idea that you can't ask people to vote who have no understanding of right. The world around them, education becomes, you know, both a form of emancipation and a form of indoctrination. And then the second question, which is a related one, certainly, is about how do you train an elite who's going to be the real knowledge providers? And that's when universities get developed. Um, the United States never developed an extensive public education system till very late in the game, mm -hmm. and because, in fact, there was always some considerable skepticism about educated elites, about whether they were learning impractical things, you know, professors of metaphysics are a kind of common target, right, right talking about nothing, right. uh, maybe still a valid critique, right. I don't know. But there, there is a tension between the idea of a need for an educated citizenry and a fear of 
producing the kinds of elites that will separate themselves from the people and have knowledge that has no real practical foundation. And is this the fear about elites that they are detached? They also are corruptible because they could yes. look at their own self-interest. So, And there's a debate right now that flares up all the time that the justices on the Supreme Court went to two or three schools, but really mm -hmm. two schools. Two. They went to Harvard and Yale Law Schools. Mm -hmm. And people say, why do two schools produce the people who are supposed to decide the most essential legal issues of our nation? And would that really be a breadth of opinion back on an experience? Right. And I think Sonia Sotomayor's biography really illustrates when she said, my life experience matters here mm -hmm. as much as my legal training. But what's the suspicion that elites, they fall prey to what? They are so lost in the clouds and the ivory towers and study metaphysics or... They also can become beholden to other things. Absolutely. That's that's the interesting thing about the critique is that it goes in both directions, that they either get so separated from ordinary people's existences that they live in a kind of bubble. They've been educated in a monoculture, Harvard and Yale in the case of the Supreme Court justices, and then they only associate with people like themselves. They cease to think other kinds of opinions matter, and they simply reinforce their own biases by associating with people just like themselves. That's one critique. The other goes the other direction, is that these kind of supposedly impartial, brilliant men and women of the Supreme Court are deeply human and lust for money and power and all the same things as other people and are thus easily corruptible. They are easily bought. They have private opinions, and they are phonies in some sense because they represent themselves in the case of Roberts famously called himself an umpire, right? right? And that he this is... He calls the strikes, but He calls the, the strikes, exactly. <laughs> but that this is a misrepresentation of the fact that these are partisan people who have political, financial, emotional investments in very particular causes. Right. And this would have horrified Kant and Jefferson. Absolutely. Who actually thought themselves as having no self-interest in mm -hmm. matters of state. Now we have the deconstruction of the myth of Jefferson through people like Annette Gordon-Reed, who mm -hmm. have shown that Jefferson is both the progenitor of the idea of American democracy and a slave owner who enslaved women yeah. and Sally Hemings for his children, which has now been established, although we have a vibrant debate by people who dispute all of this. Mm -hmm. But to go to this first critique on the experts, that they are, they could be sort of separated off, the coastal elites, they could just talk to themselves and don't, and they lose touch with the American people, with the basic people who sort of live everyday lives. That has been from the beginning a criticism. It's been one that's really been activated in the last few years, not just by Donald Trump, but there's mm -hmm. always been this kind of resentment against elites. And in some ways, that's very justified, maybe more justified now than ever. It's longstanding, but we can't exactly dismiss it insofar as elite education has pulled away to a large degree from public and more popular forms of education as more and more educated people are clustered in a certain number of coastal cities, but cities certainly. You know that people who are well-educated don't necessarily return to their hometown and become the town doctor. They go off to find fame and fortune at, you know, I don't know, NYU Medical School or something right. like that. There is reason to feel that elites have separated themselves. And this is a I would say a knockoff effect of the larger way in which the economic divide in the country in most advanced democracies right now has been exacerbated by government policy in the last, since really the 70s, insofar as that it is harder to say that educated elites do live in the same world with the same preconceptions as people who 
earn less, have less education, and live in different places and engage in different activities. The other side to this would be we don't entrust elites because of the problems you just identified, but we allow the people to speak. And this is part of this whole history that you said from the beginning when only men, white men with property or the means to support families could vote to increasing the franchise people could vote. The idea that the people could actually provide a better direction for the government and the country. There's something to be said for that. Absolutely. What was the initial, in both the French and American context, what was the initial idea that the people could be empowered up to what point? Or... Yeah, so this is always the question of what the people means, of course, right? Because the people could be everyone, the people could be some people, and the people could be purely an abstraction, some notion of the nation in abstract way, which doesn't require it to be directly represented. So after the American Revolution, after the French Revolution initially, the nation was sovereign, but only some propertied men got the vote. And nobody instantly thought that was a contradiction because the people were imagined to be a much more abstract entity rather than each individual man in his capacity as a citizen. So as an abstract expression, it doesn't tell us much the people should rule. Mm -hmm. The real debate has been about how much to allow ordinary people to weigh in on issues of national or international concern. Some decisions are not made by the public. We don't decide collectively if we should go to war, for instance. Other decisions are sometimes put up as referenda. There are good critiques of why referenda often lead in the wrong direction, away from good policy. But Brexit would be an interesting example. Brexit would be an example. And when people said afterwards, well, if I'd known what I know now, I might have voted differently. I didn't quite understand the implications of the vote. Brexit would be a really good example there. <laughs> And to stay with this for a moment, so we live in a representative democracy, so it's not a direct democracy. It's not never the idea that the people directly decide on all these things. Yeah. And as you also point out, referring to Hannah Arendt, among other people, that sometimes secrecy and even deception, hypocrisy, lying is part of politics because yeah. you want to achieve a goal. You don't tell everybody everything. You're negotiating, et cetera. That's always been part of it. Mm -hmm. But to stay with this for the moment, so the, the franchise was expanded. People, when only propertied men were given the vote, I think women and black people thought that was wrong from the beginning. There was a voice, and this voice is an some. interesting one in America that actually from from this kind of grassroots dissent comes this kind of opposition yeah. to say we are not really fully representative, that we have these amazing cases of an African-American woman suing for her own freedom and winning right. in Massachusetts in a court. And the court kind of looks at her and thinks, you're right, there's a contradiction here somewhere. Yes. So you have these amazing examples where the people actually are able to confront the culture of expertise. So before we get to mm -hmm. the problems with populism, populism yeah. in America is one of the driving forces for democratization. Everywhere. I mean, of course, a question like women's suffrage divided women as much as it divided men. So women have never been a kind of unified category. Plenty of women actively campaigned and became political leaders arguing against the vote, which sounds to us like a strange contradiction. Okay, I do want to know what the argument was. <laughs> well, you know that it would take away from women's basic duties, that women were not temperamentally suited to voting, that men were perfectly well represented by their husbands. There were many you know, strong arguments. So how would arguments. we approach something like this? You if, still if have a kind of Phyllis Schafly being a public mm -hmm. figure who right. argued direct, you know, went around the country arguing against the Equal Rights Amendment for women. So it's not impossible to imagine. But your larger point is the key one here, which is that 
popular movements everywhere have been essential in driving the expansion of democracy. And very little democratization has come from above. Almost all of it has been mm -hmm. driven by popular social movements. And to this day, movements like Black Lives Matter are changing the discourse in a grassroots way, not because of changes in Washington. And Me certainly. Too, or, which Me is too, one or, of the, the yeah. repercussions of the feminist movement. Yeah. So populist movements have been empowering and from a certain perspective, good for democracy. Absolutely. But then, as you say, this tension is between these elite elites to decide what's true, what's good for the nation, good for the common and greater good. And then there's the other side, which is popular opinion. But both are in this... You say at some point they're in a kind of detente or a kind of mm -hmm. truce. They kind of have an arrangement to say we have experts who decide and rule us, but we have the populace kind of pushing against that. That works for better or for worse. I mean, we have a civil war, et cetera, so it yeah. doesn't always work perfectly. It's why populism is very hard to talk about because populism is more a style of politics than a description of an mm -hmm. actual politics. There's no kind of ideology that goes with populism. At its best, a popular politics is the best feature of democracy in a way. It's the way that circumstances and situations can be changed because of popular pressure. A lot of populism, as it exists right now, though, comes out of a sense that the system is not responsive, that elites aren't listening, that corruption runs through everything, that there is almost no way to make yourself heard. And that can result in a kind of politics that's more nihilist than productive, politics that You know, maybe the politics that brought us Donald Trump, which sort of says blow up the whole system, don't open the door to more people, don't listen to more voices, reject all of it, throw it all out, get rid of all the people, get rid of the institutions, change the rules entirely. And it's it's hard to make blanket statements because there are moments when it's a good idea to blow up a system mm -hmm. and there are moments when you think modification of an existing system right. is a more practical But way this to is go. kind of essential, I think, in the second part of your book, where you say some things are reasonable to distrust elites because they could yeah. become detached or corrupt, as we said. There are many other reasons why they could be. They could be beholden to power or money. They could be bought. Mm -hmm. So there is a kind of pushback. And then you, at the same time, populism can become a counter-democratic force, it and can. the demagogue can sort of manipulate this and say, we're going to blow up the institution, and it happens to be the institutions of democracy. So right. it's an anti-democratic impulse. Right. And it can be also a kind of anti-pluralist impulse, mm. the same way that elites can sometimes be anti-pluralist. If one danger of, say, your Supreme Court justices sitting in a room all reminiscing about their Harvard and Yale days seems cut off from ordinary people. One of them doesn't remember it all the days, though. He, <laughs> as he testified, he said he's not totally yeah, right. clear on the details. He doesn't have a calendar for every day. He does have a calendar, yeah. but he doesn't really know what happened on some other days. Right. <laughs> The, uh, but on the other side is a kind of populist rhetoric that imagines the people as a unified whole. And that's quite different from, say, the civil rights movement or Black Lives Matter now, which I would not call populist movements. I would call them popular movements, but I wouldn't call them populist, in that they don't insist upon some unified notion of the people who has a kind of wisdom of its own in the abstract. And a really populist politics, I think, is characterized by a rejection of pluralism in the sense of not wanting to hear the opinions of foreigners or outsiders, or sometimes that's experts, sometimes that's members of minority groups, a Int politics that insists on a kind of unified voice of the people. It's interesting. I want to stay with this for a moment. I'm really interested in this. So the civil rights movement, you say, is a popular movement, not necessarily populist. There are many ways of looking at it. We, I think, live through a really productive 
historical analysis of this movement. I think in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of movies, a lot of really deep historical studies. Mm -hmm. And some people say the civil rights movement is about empowering African-Americans and creating opportunities for them, opening up institutions, et cetera, to them. Another narrative could be, no, it's about equality and freedom for everyone, which, yes. of course, they had compromises. They excluded the LGBT community in a certain way. Bayard Rustin is an example. They excluded mm -hmm. women in a certain way. There's mm -hmm. that. But at the same time, I see what you're saying, that populism has a more diffuse idea of what they're working for. Yeah. They, so, so if you think of populism as not being about anything in particular, I mean, a populist politics potentially could be on the right or the left. It could be, say, for free trade or for controlled economies. It, there isn't a platform. But it does have the characteristic of insisting generally that the people as a whole have been robbed of something, something they usually once had. So it has a kind of nostalgia component often, and that's something they need to get back. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because that is, you know, farmers, for instance, made good use in the late 19th century of populist rhetoric to press for their cause. But the downside becomes when that notion of getting back something we once had is anti-change, anti-pluralist, and rejects any knowledge that doesn't seem to be kind of homespun in some form, kind of kitchen table logic. And that, as you say, can be a problem from below, but it's even more of a problem when it's appropriated by political leaders who say that sometimes they know the people's wishes and wills better than they even know themselves. And when that happens, when political leaders say, we speak on behalf of the people, power enters into the picture. So it's a kind of yeah. homespun kitchen table in a local bar or diner. Mm -hmm. But now taken on, say, this is the truth. What these people say in a diner, they really know what's going on in America. Yeah. They're on the ground. They experience this every day. They know who's taken the jobs away and who's shut down the factories and who's stolen mm -hmm. their resources, et cetera. But now they're speaking with somebody who's a demagogue, and it becomes complicated in a pluralistic society. When it, power invests this kitchen table diner talk with real authority. Right, because it, it seems like the greatest hypocrisy of all in some ways, right? It's the person who would seize power from the people who often is unrepresentative of the people. If you want to say that, say, Donald Trump is a populist, which is a, you know, yes and no, but he in no way comes from the people. He doesn't represent right. the people, but he can appropriate a kind of populist rhetoric to his purposes. That's not unusual. That's probably the greatest risk in populism is the way in which it leads so easily to a kind of demagoguery in the name of the people. I think it's when you just said that, I thought this is why Fox News has been a bit worked up about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Mm -hmm. A little worked up because... <laughs> She's also speaking in a way, saying this is what the people really think yeah. about. And she's very much off the people, her youth, her background, her ethnicity, the location she comes from, that enrages people in a way. Because she's taking this, the thunder from the Fox News who are speaking for the people and saying, I speak for the people. So you have yeah. this conflict in democracy. People all suddenly saying popular opinion, a common folk, wisdom. This is what we need to have to govern us. In some ways, that's an ideal, right? As in, if <laughs> democracy, if lots of people claim to speak from different subject positions. Well, it wouldn't be different... Aristotle's ideal, Socrates' ideal, Jefferson's no, ideal, Madison's not ideal, quite. Kant. I'm not I mean, sure. it's a messy, I mean, if you believe in a kind of agonistic, <laughs> right. contentious democracy, right and this really comes to the free speech part, that you really think the more opinions out there with the more subjects speaking, 
the better off we are. I do think there's a risk in all this if there's no sort of shared truth of any kind at the center, and nobody will take anything to be authoritative if, say, the Congressional Budget Office comes back with some numbers and they're rejected by one of the parties, it's very hard to come up then with economic policy. Ideally, there's some kind of agreement, say, on what the Congressional Budget Office says as fact and or close. And do you think this agreement, this consensus, that we have a shared vision yeah. for the greater good, do you think that existed more and it has? And you talk in the book about social media and globalization and certain effects that may, be, that may really be different today than they were 20 or 40 years ago. So that's a, it's a very hard question to answer. My, my sense is that we have always argued about the facts as much as the opinions. But it does seem that we are at a particularly difficult moment in terms of finding a kind of basic, low, very low-level consensus. So to give an example, it's unusual for a president to dispute the findings of his own government. Say, if, you know, if it's announced that the unemployment rate is up or down over the last month, for that to be challenged. It's usually taken that that's a record of what's happened in some sort of factual way, and then we will have very different opinions about what to do about that fact. Should we stimulate the economy this way or that way? Should we? But the policy debate rests on some kind of agreement. The important thing, I think, at the moment is that there's very little agreement even about what the facts are, and we'll see what happens after today's Cohen testimony, for instance, is another case in which it'll be interesting to see what kind of response there is. And that is both within the government and outside of the government. There have always been people who have questioned, you know, and often in the old days, more often in the left, who questioned the CIA's reports on things, for instance. Like Noam Chomsky has yeah, been, right. has I been mean, criticizing the New York Times for 50 years to, good, to good effect. And for, absolutely. For Vietnam War, the opposition to it was fueled by people distrusting mainstream sources of right. media. So what's interesting, though, is the shift to this the distrust of mainstream establishment sources of information is more prominent right now on the right. And I think the important thing is that the president and his supporters have, to a certain degree, mainstreamed the idea that major sources of information, not just the New York Times, but even government agencies, can't be trusted to supply anything like even basic information. Everything is spin. Hannah Arendt, in this famous essay, Truth in Politics, it's after Watergate, she talks about this deliberate, what do you say, mainstreaming of falsehood that we get yeah. so used to it that actually you're really disoriented. And then there's all these websites that you mentioned, these fact-checking websites, and mm-hmm. the Washington Post keeps a tally of how many lies have been told. And frankly, I can't keep up with it. It's 5,226 yeah, lies can. this morning, and <laughs> I forgot what lie was told two days ago. And Aaron says this does something, this erodes what you call this general trust that we all believe there are some facts. Some of this is really driven by technology, too. I mean, the other problem with all the fact-checking, which I strongly support, I think it's essential that we have a record of what's true and what's not, but even the fact-checking itself propels conspiracies and rumors and falsehoods to the top of lists because of the way algorithms work. So that if I report in the New York Times that Pizzagate didn't happen or that the caravan is not really heading for the border... By simply using the term caravan or Pizzagate, I've pushed the centrality of that story up higher. And so I've actually heard that in many cases conspiracy theorists hope 
they will be fact-checked precisely because it propels their storylines in different ways. That's really hard to combat. And if you're getting a story in the Times or the Post or on Slate or something like that investigating it, the correction, the retraction gets much less attention, as we know. But the right. first story matters because now you're in the news. So now you've introduced into the news something that is completely made up, mm -hmm. but it's in the news. And the terms have been set. So the word like caravan, for instance, is enter right. the popular consciousness. Nobody's quite sure who it is, where it is, what country they're in. But there's some sense that there's going to be some kind of invasion at the border and it's coming. Because people don't necessarily read that carefully. They don't remember which thing said what was, as you say, right. you don't even remember what yesterday's untruth was. So there's a, a way that disinformation and misinformation have become mainstream that is probably peculiar in some ways to our moment. Not that there was no realm of disinformation before. There always has been. But both the centrality of it to political life and the fact that it seems some people, a significant part of the population actually doesn't care in the sense that they're willing to forward misinformation without labeling it as such, does pose a real problem for democracies. I don't think it means that you know democracy is finished, but it does make democracy harder to practice for sure. And is that because, what you said, this shared consensus or this idea that some facts are facts? I want to mm -hmm. touch on two points. One, you say this, it's common critique of all my teachers of the post-structuralists. So I was, mm -hmm. I was very fortunate. I studied with Jean-François Lyotard and mm. Jacques Derrida, and I took seminars with Catherine McKinnon and uh, Julia Kristeva, Elin mm. Sixou, so all mm -hmm. the usual suspects yeah. who eroded the truth, introduced absolute relativism, don't believe in facts, think all opinions matter. And there are two parts to this. The first part is that they supposedly deconstructed the truth. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing that we can assume because it's all managed by who has the power to tell you the story. And secondly, they also enabled people to participate for the first time, for example, in the field of historiography, that mm -hmm. women's history, uh, the history of minoritized people have become a field that they really were not 50 years ago. So can you say something about this first attack, which I hear quite a bit, and people have really said to me, your teachers are fully responsible for deconstructing the truth, and Steve Bannon has quoted this, and therefore Trump is the first... Yeah sort of post-modernist president. <laughs> I have to say I don't buy that argument. I mean, the, at the very most practical level, I think it's really hard to say that, say, Kristeva has had a large cultural impact outside of the halls of academe, you know? <laughs> I don't think that actually deconstruction, post-structuralism have had the kind of cultural impact that, in a way, either supporters or detractors imagine that it has. I don't see literature departments determining how politics is practiced today in particular, and I don't think deconstruction ever had that large an impact in the social sciences, maybe history at the outer borders. So I'm hesitant about that argument. I also think in a different way that a lot of positive things came out of mm -hmm deconstruction and post-structuralism. You mentioned an emphasis on voices that were submerged in the record. Another thing is it's simply an emphasis on trying to understand the truth as a historical construct in the first place. I don't think most of us would try to understand truth as having a history without, say, Foucault somewhere lurking in the background. It doesn't mean that one has to accept everything that was said as if Foucault were some kind of oracle, but all of the figures you mentioned opened up some really interesting questions 
that we can grapple with without dismissing the idea that some things did happen and some didn't. I mean, you, you know, the outlying test is always about Holocaust denial, for instance. And I think it, none of the figures you mentioned would have said the Holocaust didn't happen. Well, Lyotard, one of his major books, Jean-François Lyotard, The Different, he talks about Holocaust deniers, which were a big thing in France, mm-hmm. as you know, in the yeah. 90s and the 80s. Forisson, these people who were legitimated, Noam Chomsky wrote an introduction to one of those books. Yeah. So Noam Chomsky, leftist, wrote an introduction to a Holocaust deniers book under the guise of freedom of speech. Leotard said, this is not insignificant because he's disputing facts. But then he said, and it's hard to prove these facts because there are not so many survivors. So it's quite interesting. So he actually Mm. said, this is a real philosophical Mm -hmm. problem in the Mm. 80s. So what I'm trying to see is whether there's been a systematic attack on facts for quite a while, but what Lyotard couldn't anticipate, in the postmodern condition, he says something really interesting. He says, the truth will be up for grabs. It'll be up to powerful in- institutions to decide what counts f- as a narrative because that mm-hmm. shapes it. It's a Thomas Kuhn argument which yeah. you talk about in your book. But then he says, but it'll never be possible for everybody to participate in this conversation mm. because he couldn't anticipate the internet. Yeah. But no, anybody can win and you can amplify right. it. You also quote Mark Zuckerberg, who was, I think, a bit sort of thrown off his game when he was asked about Holocaust deniers on Facebook. And he said, well, yeah, we should probably entertain that for a moment. It's a very interesting aspect of, and this is where American culture is really different than France or Europe as a whole, in that American free speech doctrine has generally been really unconcerned with factuality. Right. Right? It's not, most of free speech questions have been about advocacy, speech that proposes a point of view and what counts as too extreme a point of view or not. Mm-hmm. But factuality has been largely left as an open market, let the best argument prevail right. in some way. And that is extended to even Holocaust denial, which in much of the world is illegal, which is you know, seems antithetical to most Americans' conception of the speech realm. And that's what I think Mark Zuckerberg yeah. meant to say. He said it's usually for advocacy, but if people want to argue this, let them argue, and then the truth will be winnowed out in this marketplace right. of ideas. So Facebook probably, for purely commercial reasons, has taken a kind of extreme free speech position until very recently. But it it didn't count on or maybe just didn't realize till too late, if we want to be generous about it, that some opinions are potentially dangerous when they get spread in different forms, that you can stoke various forms of hatred that can lead to violence very easily. You know, spreading rumors, this kind of rumor mongering in India led to a series of murders following disinformation circulated on Facebook. What do you do about that? And that, that really challenges, I think, any notion that, you know, let the best argument prevail. Right. And you talk about Fred Schauer, who has written this book. So he mm-hmm. says mostly free speech is concerned with advocacy in this yeah. country. And it's a and wonderful you, book. And it's actually interesting you raise this topic and say, not that we should regulate speech more, but we have to contend with the fact that social media is a force. When John Stuart Mill said the greatest threat is actually public opinion, popular mm-hmm. opinion, it's not some expert striking you down and punishing you, but it's the Twitter mob, which he couldn't <laughs> imagine would be that powerful. Right. So do you think because social media has this outsized influence that we don't quite know what to do? And I'm always amazed when conservative Republicans say Facebook should be regulated by the government. And I thought, wait, isn't this the party against regulation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody's at a loss what to do. I mean, I think the law has not caught up from anything. I could tell with new forms of technology that we still, our speech 
doctrine is really comes from an information-poor world where more information mm -hmm. is an advantage. And we live in a kind of information-saturation world where there's too much and from all directions, and it's the real difficulty is sorting it and figuring out what to take as authoritative in a in a world in which we're bombarded with different snippets of information, some true, some false, some opinion, and, and, and we can't, we don't have the sorting tools for it. And I want to ask you something about that. So you, we don't have a sorting tool. We don't have an editor at Facebook who can sit there all day and say, this is correct, this is mm -hmm. false. But what's at stake is moral guidance also. Yeah, for someone that's a to good say, point. which is how First Amendment doctrine has worked in this country always to say, we tolerate the most vile, hateful speech, but at the same time, we strongly condemn it. This has been the line from the ACLU, mm -hmm. from Skokie, when Skokie happened, when the Nazis marched in the suburb of Chicago, Jimmy Carter was asked about this. And mm -hmm. it said, when he was really unhappy that he was asked about this at a press conference. And he said, well, this goes against all of America's values. I condemn this in the strongest terms. We abhor these views, mm -hmm. but I'll leave it to the courts. Mm -hmm. So the moral guidance was with the president, and the courts had to decide and said, yeah, we let them march. Now we have a president who didn't come out strong on Charlottesville and doesn't mm -hmm. have this moral guidance. You have Zuckerberg who says, right. well, I don't really know because Zuckerberg is probably not a moral philosopher at heart. He's a businessman. Right. Who's, so there's something missing that's not just about facts. A lot of things operate according to norms rather than laws, right? So there are always some things in every culture, even in a free speech culture, that can't be said because we sort of consent, have agreed that they're morally reprehensible, right? So there are certain things that are illegal to say. Right. I mean, you cannot go on the radio and advocate sex with somebody underage, right? It's illegal because we've come to some conclusion that that's beyond the pale of our moral imagination. Right. We also I cannot libel a company there, on this yeah, podcast. That's right. You I can, actually it, cannot talk about that some was producing dangerous products. Yeah. That's so, restricted right, because right. commercial interests are restricted. So there are a lot of ways in which actually free speech is never without restrictions on what you can say or do. And some of them are for commercial reasons. Um, some of them are about re preserving reputations. Some of them are about moral questions. But they depend on some kind of common agreement mm -hmm. that that wouldn't be fair or good in some way. It would be unjust. The internet seems to have bred a kind of culture in which nothing is taboo also. That's the other aspect, I think, that maybe Facebook didn't count on. And, and the question is, should the law step in in some ways, right? Or if, the, if we're not going to get moral guidance from above in any kind of way, if there's no popular consensus, do we need courts to do this? Do we just allow a kind of free-for-all culture to reign, in particularly in a medium in which people can be sort of unaccountable because anonymous in many cases? And this, for example, accountability is Americans, we would really shrink away from this, but in China, you cannot be anonymous on the internet. So yeah. you have an IP address, you can, you post something and they on Weibo and they will find you if they mm -hmm. really want to find you or they shut you down. And also Weibo is purged all day long of anti-Chinese sentiments. Right. So they have a huge, robust culture of censorship <laughs> that we would think is totally inimical Absolutely. to democracy. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's part of what the Chinese notion of the third way, that you can have a kind of capitalist <laughs> semi-democracy, but without the kind of ordinary human rights realm that we assume is necessary for a democracy. That's what one wants to avoid in some sense, a kind of curtailment of civil liberties, certainly. On the other hand, our kind of investment in the idea of a totally free marketplace of ideas that will, in the end, produce something akin to the best we can do for truth 
may be an obsolete image for our hmm. times. I don't have any good or easy answers, or really any answers at all, to sort of what that regulation would look like. But there's something of, you know, sort of bearing your head in the sand to sort of say, let everything flourish and see what happens well, uh, and worry afterwards right. if there are dangers. I mean, I'm I'm really interested in the free speech controversies because I think they kind of bring to the surface the issues you've talked about, the relevance of a shared interest in a truth that people can agree on in democracy, mm -hmm. the fact that expertise and popular opinion are in a kind of tension in democracy, yeah. that that tension could be productive but can be exploited at any moment for someone to say it's too much unpopular opinion or too many experts. Right, yeah. The free speech controversy, I think, highlight these things. I think you're right. I don't think they can be solved by revising everything. What I find amazing is, as Justice Clarence Thomas a week ago said, he wants to look at Times versus Sullivan, which has established kind yeah. of free speech law for 50 years. We're in the journalism department at NYU. This has been the bedrock of American journalists for 50 years, but only for 50 years. And Thomas said, this is not reflecting at all what should have been envisioned in 1791 when the First Amendment mm -hmm. was ratified. And I'm really interested to think, well, yeah, right. He should look at it again. And everybody I know on the left and the right is outraged that he's even raised it. Interesting. Yes, <laughs> right. I mean, nothing. that is the question. Things become kind of sacrosanct, right? It's yes. sort of, and then it turns out they don't have as deep roots as you think. And circumstances change. Politics can change. Media environments can change. It does make me nervous to hear Clarence Thomas say that. But you're probably right that there's no doctrine is beyond re-examination in new circumstances. Which, of course, Th Thomas says there is one, which is originalism, the Constitution. He knows yeah, what it really which, meant. Which, which of is... course, is, is <laughs> I mean, the newspapers in the early republic didn't purport to be objective in the first place. Yeah. And libel laws were different, too. So but I think this is what your book does really well. It says you can refer back to an earlier moment when the truth really mattered, when experts were not out of control and telling us how to live. But then you're just referring to an earlier moment. And in the end of the book, you say, history will not really teach us how to live in the future. I really but believe that. As a historian, <laughs> I, really, I mean, what history doesn't do is give you answers. So the originalism is completely, in that sense, mistaken, the, the idea that you can get into the minds entirely of people in the 18th century. But it's, re it's reassuring. We got the tablets from the mountain, and we know what the truth is, and there's a yeah. kind of belief we have that the founders knew best. That they knew. And what they do is they help us think through our current dilemmas, I think. I think it's very instructive to go back because you do see how contingent all of the arrangements we have now are, that we could reimagine different relationships between things. And we can also see what some of the bedrock principles are that have been both theorized and sometimes put into practice and sometimes ignored or rejected even over time. So I think history is marvelous for thinking with about the present. Mm -hmm. It gives us a kind of position from which to analyze the world we live in, but it doesn't tell us anything about how we should live, and it doesn't tell us anything about how we will live. I want to ask you a final question. So I had Ruth Ben-Ghiad on this podcast, who's written a lot on the kind of strongman politics right. of Trump. She teaches at Penn, actually, this yes, semester. Yes, I know, I know Ruth, yes. Jason Stanley, who has written a book, How Fascism yeah. Works. Now you've written Democracy and Truth, A Short History, to give us this deeper understanding and give us historical moments that illustrate what's at stake today. And then Corey Brettschneider has written the, uh, the Oath and the Office about the constitutional limitations on the presidency. What's your general sense in terms of your mood? Are you more panicked? Or are you <laughs> thinking it's fine? I've talked to Patricia Williams, who said uh -huh. she said she looks at a sort of survey of the news every morning from the right to the left. She looks at Breitbart, all these really 
you know, kind of sensationalizing news stories. And I said, well, I can't do it for an hour. It actually kind of, I don't really know what to go after that. It's disorienting. It is. So where do you think we are? Because your book is sort of trying to say that this has been a problem, a productive yeah. problem also for democracy, that we shouldn't assume yes. democracy knows what the truth is right away. I think that's right. I am a little more hesitant than Jason Stanley or Ruth Ben-Gayot, for instance, to say that we're sort of plunged into a moment that has quasi-fascist tendencies. I, like everybody else, am alarmed by authoritarianism and signs of it. Um, I'm alarmed by what's sometimes called post-truth culture. But I think there's been a significant amount of pushback, too, and that we can't dismiss the pushback that's come from people in the streets, people voting, from institutions. The, much of the government is doing what it's supposed to do, which is launch investigations and kind of push back. So I would say the jury's out, really. I think we're in a very delicate moment. I'm as worried as everybody else, but I don't think it's clear where we're headed. And the pushback could be potentially as great as the sort of right populism that we've been seeing mm -hmm. as dominant in the last few years. So the interesting thing in some ways is that the split on the right now looks as if it's going to be matched by a split on the left. And the whole spectrum of American politics seems to be expanding, that ideas that were really taboo or off right. the table are back in the center of things. So the downside is that we probably lose some of that consensual middle ground culture. On the plus side, we get new ideas, new people, new energy, and it's possible that this will lead to a kind of revitalization of democratic politics. And I just think we're at a, a moment in which anybody purports to know what's going to happen is uh, <laughs> uh, has some kind of crystal ball that I haven't seen. Right. Now, it's interesting when we think about what we thought about several years ago. I interviewed Randall Kennedy, mm -hmm. and I asked him 10 years ago. He wrote a book about racial politics right before the, Obama, the first Obama election. So I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, and I said, what do you think today? And he said, it was very moving, actually. He said, I mm -hmm. say, with deep sorrow and regret, I underestimated this country's rage at having a black family in the White yes. House and the fury at having any minority get anything. And this is someone who's been, who's very much sort of right. an established Harvard professor. Absolutely. And I said, what are you doing now, Professor Kennedy? He said, I'm writing much more, hmm. and I'm being much more clear. You actually mentioned this in your book, that you say, social policies have a cost. We have to be honest about this. It's not just, I know that the certain immigration bill is good for the country, and then other people just have an opinion. You have to entertain the other opinion and say they have a point maybe. And he said that liberals have to look at all sides, probably not pretend it's all good for everybody. I think nobody could have anticipated what seemed like a marvelous victory for the U.S. in electing a black president back in the early part of this century, now seems long ago, would have produced such an intense reaction. Some African-American scholars are less surprised, and they're probably rightly so. They say, you know, kind of that it's uh, the only people who are really surprised are white liberals, that there was always... But who also were disappointed by Obama for eight years right. because and he wasn't so, a messiah and Right, and so, so, so this sort of one <laughs> yeah. step forward, one step back, right. or maybe two steps forward right. and one step back, but that this is the, the pattern and that 
people like me shouldn't be surprised that this was inevitable in some way. If that's true, there's going to be a kind of continual pendulum swing as we kind of lurch mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. thing to thing. But it does seem astonishing the degree to which Trump is a repudiation of everything about Obama. And that's not just at the level of questions of race or politics, but even when it comes to these questions of truth and knowledge, one represents the antithesis of the other. If Obama was the sort of professor as president. Trump is the, whatever you want to imagine the antithesis is, mm -hmm. it, he seems to embody in his person and his disinterest in ideas or books or, you know, even the misspelled tweets are in a sense, maybe even a deliberate ploy to suggest a kind of uh, a very different approach to how we know anything and how we should make decisions. Will those two things ever swing back into some kind of balance? don't know. Exactly. I want to thank you also for writing such a clear and elegant book. It's thank not you. a very, very long kind. book, so I think actually, you know, I'm going to put it on the requisite websites and social media channels. So it's called Democracy and Truth, A Short History. So thank you so much, Professor Rosenfeld. Really wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a delight to talk to you. Great. Thank you.